Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Today my message is entitled, Raising Your Sights. And it's one of those words with or expressions with a double meaning. There's a literal meaning and there's a figurative meaning. And the literal meaning is like if you were a marksman of some sort to raise your sights. If you were an archer, you don't aim at the target. You have to aim high because of gravity and you need a trajectory. So you, re, you raise your sights. If you're a marksman, you would do the same thing. The further away you are from the target, you still have to contend with gravity and you have to raise your sights in order to be able to hit the target. And it was Norman Vincent Peale that said almost a hundred years ago, he said this, he said, aim for the moon. And even if you miss, you still may end up amongst the stars. Isn't that a great expression? And so there's this literal aspect of raising your sights. But today I want to talk about more of the figurative meaning of it. And raising your sights means to raise your expectations. And what I'm going to be challenging you to do today is to raise your expectations that God has much more for you than even you know. But first, I want to tell a little story about a man by the name of Matt Emmons. Matt Emmons has been considered probably one of the greatest marksmen in all of history. He's one of the most decorated medals. Here's a picture of him. He's a U.S. shooting team. He's just covered with medals uh, that he's won in pretty much every event that he ever went into. Uh, But he's also known as history's most unlucky Olympian. And let me tell you the story. It was the 2004 Athens Olympics, and he had already won the 50-meter prone. 50-meter prone, here's a picture of it. As you could probably guess, you do it lying down. And he had won that. He won the gold medal. He was just so much better than everybody else. It was, uh, uh, you know, not even funny. And then he went into the next event, which is called the three-position. Now, the three-position, you do it standing up, kneeling down, and lying down. And he was so far ahead of everybody, all he had to do was hit the target anywhere on the target. It was a no-brainer. And he won the gold medal in the three-position shoot. And anyway, he got a bullseye on the wrong target. He shot at the target next to him in the next lane. You saw them. They're all lying down together. He shot in the next target, got a bullseye. Here's a picture of him. What? (laughs) He can't believe it. And so he gave, he ended up in eighth and out of the medals in this. People couldn't believe it. And they thought, wow, that was bad luck. 2008, it's the Beijing Olympics. He's in the three position once again. And he thinks to himself, whatever happens, I am not shooting the wrong target. And so he was obviously a little bit apprehensive, and he carefully checked, I'm aiming at the right aim uh, in the right lane. He brought his gun up, and he pulled his trigger prematurely and shot it into the ground. <laughs> and once again, <laughs> finished outside of the medals. And, and here's my point in all of this. You know what the greatest tragedy in life is, I think? When people aim at the wrong target and get a bullseye. I mean, how many people do you know that when you look at their life, you think they're aiming at the wrong targets in life? I mean, what does it really accomplish if if you're aiming at these things that are pointless and meaningless and not of value? What did Jesus say? We all remember what he said. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And what we see around us, so many people, is aiming at targets and hitting those targets, and they're the wrong targets. 
I remember when we were in our 30s and we had a bunch of friends in different businesses and whatever. And one friend was in the real estate business and he was killing it. I mean, for a young 30-something-year-old guy, he was just killing it and selling houses and making money. And he started buying cars and he started buying boats and he started you know, building this big, beautiful house and all this stuff. He drove around in a convertible Mercedes. Uh, it was just a gorgeous car. And at 35 years old, he was in a car accident and killed. And his family and his friends decided what better epitaph to put on his tombstone than this, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. And I remember thinking to myself, no, he who has the most toys when he dies still dies. And here's what I think has happened to us. I think our priorities have got so mixed up and so confused in our culture. And some of us had great hopes for COVID. You say, what? Hopes for COVID? Well, everybody thought there was going to be this big, great reset and that people were going to get their priorities aligned and their priorities straightened out. And uh, we figured that we were going to become a kinder and a gentler people. We were going to care more about other people. We thought we were going to become more family friendly and we were going to care for the environment. We thought that materialism would drift away and people would become more spiritually minded. Is that what we saw? No, we didn't see people. We saw, we saw probably the most grumpy era I've ever seen in my life. People were mad about anything and everybody and mad at, at everything. It was ridiculous. But beyond that, what we did was we sat at home and we shopped online for two years until everything that was to be bought was bought. Right, And then we, we called it a supply chain problem. It wasn't a supply chain problem. It was, the problem was there was more people buying stuff than people who were actually producing the stuff. That's a problem. And you know what? To me, that didn't produce a less materialistic uh, generation of people. It produced a more, gen, more materialistic generation, right? You, some of you probably heard my story about this couple. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary, and they're sitting there, and the guy looks across the table at his wife, and he says, do you remember 25 years ago when we were married? We lived in that cheap apartment. We drove that cheap car. We slept on a sofa bed, and we watched a 12-inch black-and-white television. And here we are today, 50 years later, and we're living in that beautiful house, and we have three cars in, in the garage, and we sleep in a king-size bed, and we watch a 65-inch LED television. But he says, here I am, married to a saggy 50-year-old woman. He says, honey, I don't think you're holding up your end of the bargain. She says, fine, you go find yourself another 25-year-old, and I will make sure you're back in that cheap apartment, driving that cheap car, <laughs> sleeping on that sofa bed, and watching a 10-inch black and white television. Here's my point, people. I think we can do a whole lot better than this, don't you? What would happen if maybe the world won't do this? What would happen if the church, what would happen if we began to raise our sights and aim for the higher aspirations of life? What would happen if we began to say, let's seek after our God-given destiny and our purpose in life. Let's attempt to make a difference in life. Let's not buy into the bankrupt values of our world, but let's be transformed by the power of God. Now, let me show you my verse. It's just one little simple verse today, and I love it, and it has to do with what God's plan for your life is, and I think you're going to like it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
You know, when we do things in our own power, when we do things in our own strength, we get our own results. But when you start tapping into the power of God and his purpose for you, he says, I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think. I'm going to go exceedingly above, beyond what you could think or even ask. That's the God I serve. I want to raise my expectations. I want to raise my sights. I want to shoot for the moon, don't you? Because when I do that, God says, I will take you higher. I will take you even further. You should be cheering about this point. That's what you should be doing in case you're wondering. See, see let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think that, that Gideon, for example, a simple farm boy, ever thought for a moment that he would be leading Israel for 40 years? Do you think David, a simple shepherd boy, ever thought that he would be the king of Israel? Do you think Peter, a simple fisherman on the shores of Galilee, ever thought he would become the most recognizable religious figure in all of history next to Jesus himself? Do you think Moses, a washed up 80-year-old shepherd, ever thought that he would earn a Ph.D.? Potential Hebrew deliverer, in case you're not catching that. He, he, I don't think for a moment he ever thought. You go into scripture and this is what you discover. You discover that when people decide that they're going to raise their sights, when they're going to seek after God's purpose and plan and destiny for their life, God takes them beyond what they could possibly ever ask or think. And there's a principle in this, and every single one of them did more or less the same thing. I'm just going to pick up one of these, these guys that I, that I mentioned here, and I'm going to talk about Moses. Because Moses is an interesting case study, because he was destined for greatness, don't you think? The fact that he was, he was saved at his birth, and he was picked out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised in Pharaoh's home, and he was destined for greatness. There's no question and no doubt about it. And yet, we read the story in in the book of Exodus, where do we find him? On the backside of the desert, working for his father-in-law. If he's 80 years old, how old's his father-in-law, right? And he's working, he doesn't not even run in his own ranch, he's working for his father-in-law, and he, for 40 years, he's been a shepherd boy. He's 80, and he's a shepherd boy. It's like that episode out of Seinfeld where Kramer's goal for his life was to be the ball boy at the tennis club. Right? Six foot four doofus running and chasing after ball. You, I want you to imagine what an underachiever he was by 80 years old. And so God addresses him. God confronts him. Confronts him. He invades his life. You remember the story. And he spoke to him from the burning bush. And God says to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go up to the Pharaoh. And I want you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then I want you to lead all of those people, probably some two or three million of them. I want you to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses said, sure, I'm in. Is that what he said? No, he said, but what if they don't listen to me? They're not going to listen to me. Look at me. I'm an 80-year-old shepherd boy. Well, they're not going to listen to me. And who remembers what, what God answered him in that moment? Who remembers? He, he asked them a question. And the question was, what is in your hand? Do you remember that question? What is in your hand? What was in his hand? He had, he had, the, he had a shepherd's rod in his hand. He said, what is that in your, in your hand? What is that? Hey, oh, man, am I glad you're here. What is that in your hand? We did not set this up. <laughs> Look at that. This is, this, you know what? Preaching is like comedy. Timing is everything. Thank you for coming, sir. 
And <laughs> I'm so blessed by this. <laughs> and so, so he says, what is in your hand? He looked at a stick. <laughs> it was a rod. But what was the rod? What was the rod symbolic of? What was it? It was, it was the tool of his trade, right? And, the, and the, the shepherd's rod was a very important tool. Even today, the shepherds use rods. Here's a picture of this, a modern. Uh, and, and you see what he's doing with that rod? He is, he is leading the sheep with that rod. And that's what he's doing with that. And that was what was in his hand. So then he says to him, he's asked him this weird question. What is that in your hand? And he says, a rod. And he says, cast it down. So he cast it down. And what happened to it? It turned in, it didn't break. <laughs> Go read your Bible. <laughs> you know what? The kids' classes are in the back. They'll be, stu- <laughs> they'll be studying that story right, right, right now. And so he, so he said, so what happened to it? Someone, somebody goes to church, tell me. Yeah, it turned into a serpent. And so, yo, he's freaked out. It's turned into a serpent. And so he picks, he picks it up. He picks up the serpent. And what happened? It turned back into a staff, but it turned back into the rod. And that, that rod was the most important part of his life from there on. I want you to think about this. Because he was, he was a shepherd, and he left leading sheep, and he went off to lead the people. And here's the thing. Did he, did he leave his, his rod behind? No, he took his rod with him. I, I wonder if you ever, ever thought about this, that now he, he's, he's left the sheep, but he's still got his rod. Why? Because that is who he is, and that is what he does, and it's a symbol of something we're going to talk about in a moment. And God took something extremely ordinary, which was his rod, which was a piece of wood, and it became something incredibly powerful. And when you go and you read the story, what did God use to perform the miracles? The rod, right? The rod. He put out, held out the rod and people were healed. He held out the rod and plagues came. He held out the rod and the Red Sea divided. He smote the rock with the rod and water came out of the rock. And God took something that was incredibly ordinary. I always think about this story and I think, imagine if he had been a fisherman and he had asked him what's in his hand. He said, a fishing rod. And he and, and says, now go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you imagine him showing up in Pharaoh's court with a fishing rod and pointing it at him? What if he was a bowler? Would he have showed up with a bowling ball? Let my people go. And Moses held up his bowling ball and the Red Sea divided. You say, what's going on here? I'll tell you, here's what the rod is. And this is really important for us. And this is where I'm going today. The rod is a symbol of three things. And it was his time, his talent, and his treasure. You see, here's the thing about a shepherd. They, they never let the rod out of their sight. Every moment of the day, all time, they have their rod with them. It's always in their hand. When they're sleeping, the rod is by their side because you never know when you're going to need it to beat off a lion or a bear just like we saw or heard about David doing. And then it was also a symbol of his talent. I, I think I'm guessing, but after 40 years, I'm probably pretty good at it. And so that's a symbol of his talent. And it was also his symbol of his treasure because that was how he earned a living. And so thank you so much, sir, for coming and bringing your rod. And uh, God bless you. Let's give him a hand. I asked my mom to bring her rod. My mom has a rod. I picked her up this morning. I asked her to bring her rod. And she brought a cane. I said, I'm not using that aluminum cane to, to, for this illustration. It's not going to work. And so Moses held up his aluminum cane. Uh, 
So, so here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about these three things. When, here's what happens. When we take that which God has given us that seems quite ordinary to us, when we lay it down, God turns it into something extraordinary. Probably I've convinced you of that so far, right? And so, amen. Thank you. And so let's show the first one up. The first one is time. I got my three targets today. They're going to be time. They're going to be talent. They're going to be treasure. And the first thing that we want to re- raise our expectations on is this thing called time. Now, time has become people's most valuable commodity today. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're seeing that people, people's time is very, very precious to them, and they would rather give up money a lot of times than they would time. Time is so important to them. And uh, we found that in the fact that we've got this thing, this, this trend in, in culture, you've probably heard it now, called quiet quitting, where people are saying, I, I'm not going to quit my job, but I'm certainly not going to work overtime. I'm not going to put any more time into it than is absolutely necessary. And so people have guarded their time. And here's what was ironic to me, was that we had that lockdown for two, two and a half years, and people became more stingy with their time than ever before. And people said, well, I don't have time to serve, and I don't have time to volunteer, and I'm sorry, I don't really have time to go to church. But somehow they had enough time to watch the entire library of Netflix twice. And, and something, has, something has gone wrong with our understanding of time. And, and what, the te- what the scripture teaches us is there's a lot of things we can, keep, we can give up, but one of the most important things we can give up is this thing called our time. And, uh, you know, there's probably another term you've heard. How many of you heard the, the term lately called greed, greedflation? Have you heard greedflation? A few of you. Well, most of you haven't heard it. So we know we're in an inflationary period, and there's a bunch of economists and uh, pundits out there that are saying, well, this is, what, it, this is greedflation. It's not a real true uh, inflation because it's really caused by corporate greed where people are, uh, these companies are raising their prices and gouging people because of the supply chain crisis. But I think it goes a whole lot further than that. I think it's right down at the gr- gr- grassroots level. And I'm looking around me, and we know volunteerism has dropped off extraordinarily, and people People are willing to do stuff, but only if they get paid for it, and they want to be paid a lot of money. And I think we've become uh, not only stingy with our time, but stingy with the fact that we're not willing to give it up unless, unless we get paid a lot of money. Now, and now here, here's my story on this. It's, it's, it's a true story. So, so these young people came by, and, and they wanted to mow our grass this, this summer, so I asked them the question. I said, so how much do you charge to mow the grass? They said, $75 an hour <laughs> to mow grass. To which I said, so what law school did you graduate from? <laughs> and they said, what? I said, well, at that rate, obviously you have a law degree, or, or, <laughs> right? I mean, it just seemed bizarre to me. I thought, $75 an hour. Who makes $75 an hour? Do you make $75 an hour? I don't make $75 an hour. I actually did the math on it, and based on the number of hours I put in every week, I make a dollar an hour. And some people still think I'm overpaid. <laughs> and I think, what's, what's gone wrong with the world where people have to get $75 to mow grass, young people? And I, I don't, I'm not denying anybody the right to earn a living. I think we should be paid well and we earn a living. Don't get me wrong on that. But what I'm saying is, do, what, 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 have, what happened to the world if we began to recognize the fact that we could do things for other people for free and it wouldn't kill us and we would become a better society for it if we did that? And there's a certain kindness and a certain generosity with our time that has gone tragically missing. So I want to tell you a goofy story about this. So, so my brother phones me up, 
and he's bought new lawn furniture. Now, have any of you seen the new lawn furniture? You know, my idea of lawn furniture is a folding chair you throw in the back of your trunk and take it to a ball game. That's not what lawn furniture looks like. Have you been shopping for lawn furniture? It looks like something that should be in, in your living room or maybe in Buckingham Palace. I mean, this lawn furniture is out of this world. If I had my brother's lawn furniture, I'd throw mine in the dumpster and put his lawn furniture in my living room. Is what I do with it. So he phones me up and he said, I need to get this new lawn furniture to the lake. Uh, can you take it for me? And I said, well, yeah, when, next time I take my trailer down to the lake, I'll take your stupid lawn furniture, which was so big and in such big boxes, it was going to take this huge trailer to get there. So my brother got impatient with me, and he put an ad on Facebook Marketplace, and he asked, can anyone take some lawn furniture down to Lake of the Woods? So he only had two replies. <laughs> the first guy said, sure, I'll do it. I need $1,600. <laughs> <laughs> to take your lawn furniture to lake. The second guy says, yeah, I'm taking a, a load of lumber down. I'll take your lawn furniture for you. So my brother said to him, how much do you want for it? He said, a case of beer. <laughs> so which guy do you think he went with? <laughs> he went with the case of beer guy. And my brother, being the generous sort that he is, paid the guy two cases of beer, is what he did. This guy hauled this, this, this furniture all the way from Winnipeg to Lake of the Woods. And then this, this is the funniest part of the story for me. Then my brother said to me to this, he said, can you believe he did that? And I said, not really. He said, I would never do something like that for someone else. And for me, I thought that was incredibly telling that he was willing to receive that, but he knew in his heart that he would never do that for a stranger. And you know, a lot of times people think there are two types of people in this world, uh, givers and takers. But it's actually not true. There's a psychologist by the name of, of Adam Grant. Here's a picture of him. He's written this book called Give and Take. And he did a research project where they interviewed 30,000 people. And he was trying to figure out whether people were givers or takers. And he found out that most people weren't givers or takers. They were what he calls matchers. And uh, here's what a giver is. A giver is, <coughs> excuse me, a giver is somebody that will do something for someone else whether they get anything in return or not. A taker is somebody that's always in it for themselves. You know some of those takers. But he, Adam Grant's point was that most of us are actually matchers. We will do something for someone else if there's something for us in return. The Latin quid pro quo, this for that, something for something, right? And here's, here's the breakdown on it. 56% of people are matchers. Uh, only 19% are takers. And 25% are givers. And I was thinking about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was thinking about this because I, I had this great encounter where I saw this at, at work. We were coming back from the U.S. We were at the Emerson border, and for whatever reason, it happened sometimes. There was this huge lineup. It's probably a mile long, and we're at the back of this mile-long line. And, uh, and at the front, there was going to be split into the two different wickets. You can go. You know how you've done that. You've seen that. You wait till you get to the front. You go this way or that way. And the sign back there said both, both lanes. But everybody was all in one lane. And we all knew, I mean, it was obvious that there, you know, we were all waiting for the same thing. And so most of us, being the reasonable Canadians we are, were sitting in the line waiting. And then, of course, there was the takers who do what? 
They drive up the other lane waiting for someone to let them in. And the givers, there's always a few givers in the crowd who let this person that skipped the whole line cut in at the front. Now, I am not one of those people. And I was bumper to bumper with the guy in front of me, and I wasn't letting anybody squeeze in. It really doesn't make, have any advantage because they're just going to find someone else further in front of me and get it further in the lines. It's not really going to help me. But we're all getting frustrated. You can see people are getting antsy. It's super hot out. And so then this guy started coming up the, the other lane, and Kathy got out of the car. Kathy is a matcher. She believes in justice. And she got out of the car and stopped the car and started yelling at him and saying, can't you see we're all in, in line here? You go to the back of the line. And I'm thinking, I thought I was bold. <laughs> and, she's, and she says, you stop, you go to the back of the line. Can't you all see we're waiting for the same thing? You just, you just can't walk. And, and then another car came, another car, and they just sat there and they didn't want to pass her. And so she started another line beside us, behind us and held that entire line up that moved behind us as we got to the front. We had, so we did actually create two lines. And I saw it in action, the givers, the takers, and my wife, the matcher. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, is this, what, is this what God has called us to? Has God called us to be matchers? Has God called us to be takers? Interesting enough, you need to know this, that Adam Grant's research found this, that givers on an individual basis are not almost never top performers because if they're a salesman and they're always helping other people make the sales, they're less likely to make the sales themselves and that the takers actually are often the highest performers in a particular company, but they always last the least amount of time because they almost always get fired because nobody likes them, right? But here's what his research found, that the overall health and success of the organization increases dramatically and exponentially the more givers you have in the midst. And we understand that, don't we? That the, the, the secret to success has always been to be a giver. And this is what Jesus said about it. It's Luke chapter 6. Do you tell us to be givers, takers, or matchers? Which one? Who remembers? <laughs> I can send more of you back to Sunday school if you don't get this one right. He said, this is what he says. He says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Jesus has called us to this thing called giving. And when we begin to give of our time, when we give up our time, we feel, we see extraordinary things happen. So I want to talk about church for a little bit, because the, the church has been built as an organization almost entirely on giving. It has been the essence and the core of who we are as people. And it is why the church succeeds. You know, when people come visit this, this church, they're very impressed with what they say. It's a beautiful building. It's well-kept and everything's in order. There's all these people doing all these different jobs. And, and uh, it looks like this well-oiled machine from the outside. And here's the thing. I would, I would love to take credit for it. But here's what I recognize. When it comes to what goes on around here, I don't really do anything. <laughs> I don't. I, 
I thought about it. I don't answer the phones. I don't greet. I don't ush. I don't, I don't uh, work with the kids. I don't work with the, the youth. I don't lead a, the Bible studies. I don't clean the toilets. I don't make the coffee. I don't serve anything. I don't do anything. All I do is talk. Thank God I'm good at it, right? (laughs) Because I don't really do anything else. And as much as I'd love to take credit, you know, people say, Mark, that's a great church you you built. And I think, I didn't build this church. I don't really do anything. And maybe at a dollar an hour, I'm still overpaid, like I said. And, And what has happened is we've had all these people in our church that have decided that they're going to step up and they're going to serve and they're going to give and they're not going to expect to be paid and they're going to do extraordinary feats. And, and we have this ministry expo that we do every year and we remind people of that. And we had a great dropout. We really did over COVID. And it was of obvious reasons the church was closed and whatever. But now we need to re-engage and reconnect and there's every single person in this room has a particular role that you can do and you can make a difference in our midst. And I want to challenge you today to get back into the fray, get back out of, this, out of the stands and down onto the field, right? That's where, that's where, we, where we need you. So the first thing is, is our time. It's a big one. And we all have time to give. Don't tell me you have no time. You have time. We have time for our hobbies. We have time for our passions. We have time for all kinds of things. We have time. And Jesus, he's very clear about this, that he's asked us for our time. We don't necessarily have to be paid for everything. But the second thing is our, our talent. And this is, this is really fascinating because every time Jesus calls people or God calls people, he essentially asked them the same question he asked Moses. He said, what's in your hand? And what was in his hand was his rod. That was a symbol of his talent. Like I said, after 40 years, I think he was probably pretty good with that, with that rod. What do you think? I think he was pretty good. I think he knew exactly how to work that rod and use that rod and do that thing. That was his talent. That was his gift. And it's fascinating to me that every time they, that God calls somebody, he kind of asks them the same question, what's in your hand? And I want you to lay that down. And if you will lay down that talent, I will do extraordinary things with your ordinary talent. When he came to the fishermen and he called the fishermen, what was in their hand? Who remembers? There was something specific in their hands. There was fishing nets. They literally had fish. They were washing the nets. They had the tools of their trade literally in their hands. And he said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. All he did was say, I'm going to take your talent, what you already know how to do, and I'm going to focus it on something that is a higher aspiration of life. You following this? I, I want to give you a, a, a one you're going, to, you're going to struggle with this one, but you'll get it by the time I'm done. How about Mary. Mary was called, and what was it that she needed to give up? What was it that she needed to lay down that God was going to do something extraordinary with? What was it? Her thing. Her womb. She had to lay down her womb. And she said, and when he, she found out the plan that she was going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and give birth to Emmanuel, the Son of God, she said what? Let it be done unto me according to your word. She gave what she had as a 17 or 14 year old girl, however old she was, she gave this what she had. And you know, it's interesting that you've all probably heard this conversation that's going on around the world today. And it's about what is a woman? 
And we were watching this movie called What is a Woman by, by Matt Walsh. And we were watching this, and at the end of the movie, I, I, I turned, because people are so confused about this, you know what I'm talking about. And so I turned to Kathy, and I asked her this question. And I said, what makes you a woman? She said, my superpower. I said, what? I said, well, what makes you a woman? She says, my superpower. I said, what's your superpower? She says, only women have the power to create human life. That is my superpower. Isn't that cool? I thought, I, I get it. I, I'm on. And, and here's what God does. When God comes to us, he asks us, what's in our hand? What's in your hand? And, and if we can give up that thing that God has equipped us for, he will do extraordinary things with it. So let me tell you a little story about this. When I was, when I was growing up, my father was a, was a lawyer, and uh, my mother uh, was a stay-at-home mom. And my mom did a lot, of, of, a lot of volunteering. She was part of the Junior League and a bunch of things. She, she was always running off volunteering. And I remember I was driving along somewhere. I was probably, <clears throat> I don't know, 12 years old maybe. And I, it was just me and my dad. And we were driving down St. Mary's Road. And I asked them, uh, I don't know, whatever, just came to my mind. And I said, how come you never volunteer like mom does? I never see you volunteering doing anything. You don't volunteer at the church and you don't volunteer anywhere. He says, let me show you something, Mark. And he did a right turn, and we drove down this street, and we went to this Kiwanis uh, old folks' uh, home, personal care home, and we walked in the door, and we walked down the hall, and on the wall in the hallway was a plaque, and it said, in recognition of Joseph Barry Hughes, QC, for his great contribution. And I, I'd never, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know what it was. And I, and I said to him, what are you showing me? Why do you have a plaque in this personal care home? And he says, because I donated all my legal work to this charity so that they could get this building set up. And they put up a plaque in my name. And, uh, and he said, I did all that work pro bono. And I said, you like you too, the band? <laughs> That's not what pro bono means. It means doing it for free. <clears throat> and so then he told me this. He said, what would be more valuable to do as a lawyer? Would it be more valuable for me to come and sweep the floor for 10 hours or to give them 10 hours of legal services for free? And the, the, you know what the obvious answer is? The obvious answer is, you know, to use your talent. So I realized my dad did that. He did it his whole life. He was always doing that. He was always giving of the thing that, that he had, his talent. And see, when it comes to the church, that's what we all have gifts and we all have talents. And the thing that makes it happen around here is the fact that we have all these incredibly talented people. We have medical personnel they volunteer for our, our EMRT, uh, our emergency team in this place. We have people, and they may not think this is a skill, but trust me, it is, and they have the, the gift of hospitality, and they know how to treat people, and they know how to greet people, and that's why they're, our, they're ushers, and that's why our, they're our greeters. We have people that have the gift of all that stuff that goes on in the kitchen. Do you know that stuff that goes on in the kitchen? Yeah, I don't know either. I've never been in there. People say, Pastor Mark, where are the cups? How would I know? I've never been in there. You, you want me to give a speech? I'll give a speech. That's what I do. I talk. Were you listening? And, and there, but there is these people that are tremendously skilled. And so here we are. We're post-pandemic, and we actually don't have our World Cafe open. And we're struggling with volunteers in the whole hospitality area. And if that's something you can do, I want to challenge you to give up that skill. 
and to participate in it. We have people that work on bikes because they're good at it, and we have this fantastic bike ministry. And we have people that do work with youth and work with children and work with uh, immigrant people and work with English as an alternative language. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And you'll have an opportunity today to go into the foyer and to sign up for one of those things. And here's my question for you. What is in your hand? What is in your hand? It may not be a skill you learned in university, but it's a skill that God has given you and you know how to do. And I'm telling you, if you will give that up to serve him, he will turn it into extraordinary things because he has said this, that I will do more exceedingly abundantly above whatever you can think or ask. And this is how we begin to change the world. So the first thing is our time. The second thing is our talent. And the, last, and the final thing is our treasure. And our, and our treasure, of course, is an obvious one. And uh, it, it's, the, you know, for, for Moses, that's how he earned his living. And, and, you know, for us, we all have a certain amount of treasure, some more, some less. Uh, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? I love the fact that he was called the rich young ruler. That sort of identifies something about him. And he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well... Uh, uh, he says, what are the commandments? Thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not uh, steal, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not bear false witness. And this guy says, I have done all of those things since my youth. And so it says Jesus loved him. Jesus did not contend with that. And then he said to him, one thing you lack, he says, sell all your goods and give to the poor and come follow me. He was calling him to be one of his disciples. And he says, if you'll just be able to give up your treasure, but it says the man walked away sad with his head hung low because he had great wealth. And one of the things I've discovered in almost 40 years of ministry is that the people who have the greatest treasures have the hardest time giving it up. I'm going to tell you one final story here. I'm out of time, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's a good story. So we, when we built our first building on Pemina Highway, uh, we, were, we had t- kind of tapped it out. And uh, we had done fundraisers and everything. We were still $200,000 short. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and he says, you know, my dad has more money than God. And he says, why don't you ask my dad for the money? I said, why would I ask your dad? I don't even know your dad. He said, I'm telling you, he's got so much. He says, yesterday he wrote a check for $800,000 and bought a building. He had $800,000 in his checking account. He can help you out. And he says, I'll put in a good word for, for you, and you call him. So I phoned up this guy, and I said, you know, talk to your son. He said, you'd be willing to, to maybe help us out with our building? He said, I'd love to do that. He says, I love to give. That's what I love to do. He says, I've got the means. I love to help out. We were so excited. And so, uh, so we waited, and he said he threw the check in the mail. And a week later, later or so, the check arrived. And I remember we, I got the staff. There was about six of us, and we sat around the table. And I said, here it is, guys. This is a check. Do you think it's going to be 200000 Everybody say, I, maybe it's more. Maybe it's more than $200,000. And I told him the story. And so I opened the envelope, and I pulled out the check, and I held it up. And there it was, a check made out to Church of the Rock for $200. (laughs) $200. And we were all crestfallen, every one of us. And, And we thought, that just serves us right for putting our trust in man. But it was interesting to me that this guy made such a big deal about how he was going to give so generously. And for him, it was pocket change that would have fallen through the holes in his, in his pocket. And you know, when it was all said and done, you know how we did it? It was just people just giving sacrificially. 
That's what it was. And that's, that's the way the church has always survived. And God actually probably doesn't want us dependent on a few millionaires. He wants people to dig deep, deep and give sacrificially because that's how you change the world. And when what is in your hand, people? I'm going to ask you the question, what is in your hand? And I'm telling you what's in your hand, your time and your talent and your treasure. And when, if you will lay that down, when you will give that to God, he will do more exceedingly abundantly above all you can think or ask by the power that works in you. And you will fulfill your God-given destiny and your purpose, and you will reach the highest heights and the higher aspirations of life. Let's stand together. All right, we're going to take a moment here. And uh, they said, keep it short. We have ministry expo. I said, oh, I can do that. No, I can't. Uh, And so we're going to take a moment here and give you an opportunity if one of the things that's in your hand to give is your soul to Jesus, and if you have never done that, if you've never had that definitive moment where you have said yes to Jesus, where you don't know if you were to die this week, this year, this month, if you're going to heaven, I'm talking to you. And he actually has the greatest gift for you. It's, it's so amazing when you give down your, up your will, what he gives you that's exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can think or ask is eternal life. And it is so extraordinary that I couldn't even begin to describe it. But if that's you today and you have not had that moment where you've made that decision, I want you to take a a second here right now and raise your hand and let me know that that's what you'd like to do. Nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. If you'd like to make that decision to be a follower of Christ, if you're online today, I want you to just click that button on your screen and make that same decision. Anybody else want to join these folks as they're making this decision to be followers of Christ, to get on that track and get on that pathway to see God begin to change your life? All right, let's all, let's all pray together, shall we? Because I said I wouldn't single anybody out. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you died for me. You rose again. You gave me the greatest gift that anyone could ever have. The gift of eternal life. And in return, you ask me to lay down what's in my hand, my time, my talent, my treasure, and you will take that which is ordinary, and you will turn it into something that is extraordinary. And today I submit myself to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 